What will we find in today's Thursday thrillers here on the Mutual Audio Network? A few baffling mysteries? Perhaps a touch of murder? Let's find out. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike by R. Austin Freeman. Thorndike is the original fictional forensic detective from the early 1900s, using science to aid the art of detection to bring criminals to justice. This time presenting the Aluminium Dagger, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. Good morning, Colton. Yes, I'm sure, Dr. Jervis. Dr. Thorndike. What do you need at this hour of the morning? I'm not ready for breakfast yet, and I'm certainly not... There's a gentleman downstairs who says he must see you instantly on a most urgent business. He seems to be in a rare mood. Mr. Curtis, we were coming downstairs in a... I've, I've come to beg your immediate assistance, Dr. Thorndike. A most dreadful thing has happened. A horrible murder has been committed. Can you come with me now? I'll be with you almost immediately. Is the victim quite dead? Quite cold and stiff. The police think that... Uh, do the police know that you have come for me? Yes. Nothing is to be done until you arrive. Uh, very well. I'll be ready in just a few minutes. And if you'd wait downstairs, sir, I will help the doctor gather his things. It's completely folly to go undertaking murders on an empty stomach, Dr. Jervis. I'll bring a quick breakfast up for you and for Dr. Thorndike. In the first place, my name is Curtis. H Henry Curtis. Here's my card, and the card of my lawyer who was with me when I discovered the murder. He sent me to you and remained in the room to see that nothing was disturbed. Uh, that was wise of him, but tell us exactly what has occurred. The murdered man was my brother-in-law, Alfred Hartridge. I hate to speak ill of the dead, but he was a bad man. We must deal with the facts, even if they are painful. Undoubtedly. I have a great deal of very unpleasant correspondence with him. Yesterday, I left a note asking to meet and settle things. We agreed upon eight o'clock this morning, and Mr. Marchmont, my lawyer, decided to come with me. Well, you said you discovered him murdered. What happened? We arrived at eight o'clock, but no one answered the door. Marchmont went down and spoke with the hall porter, who was already concerned because the electric lights had been on all night. I suppose he went up with you to unlock the door? It was bolted from the inside. There was no sign of life, so we fetched a constable and concluded that it would be best to break in the door. Good heavens, Dr. Thorndike, what a terrible sight we found. My brother-in-law was lying dead on the floor, stabbed to death, with the dagger sticking out of his back. My brother-in-law lives here on the second floor, down the hall. I'm glad you've come, Mr. Curtis. I've brought doctors Thorndike and Jervis. So I see. Mr. Marchmont is waiting inside, guarding the room like a tenacious watchdog. Who else has come, Inspector Badger? Y you know each other? <laughs> of course, they all know me. A constable and a uniformed inspector are here now, and Dr. Egerton will return shortly to speak with you. The body is at the far end of the sitting room. Oh dear. The whole room has a look of something grim and dreadful. All the electric lights are still on. There's a book in a half-empty tumbler on the table. This is a mysterious affair. 
although it is clear enough up to a certain point. The body tells its own story. Yes, uh, let me have a look. Mm, somewhat elderly man laying on the floor, front of the fireplace, face down, arms spread out. A slender dagger projecting from below the back of the left shoulder. No blood on the back, just a trace in his mouth. The clock key is on the floor by his hand, and the clock on the mantelpiece is opened up to wind the gears. He seems to have been standing in front of the fireplace, winding the clock. The murderer crept up behind him and stabbed him. You can see from the position of the dagger that the murderer must have been left-handed. That's all quite clear. What is not clear is how he got in and out of the apartment. Has the body been moved at all? No. The police surgeon, Dr. Egerton, was here and certified the man was dead. He should be returning any moment to speak with you about a post-mortem. Then we will not disturb the body till he comes, except to take the temperature and dust the dagger hilt. How are you going to do that? Well, Dr. Jervis will explain the temperature to you while I blow a small amount of fine powder on the hilt. It will stick to any fingerprints that might be on the leather handle. We know the temperature of the average living human, so by taking the temperature now, we can determine how long the body has been cooling off. I'll just slip this thermometer under the shirt, and we'll check it later. There. Nothing on the dagger hilt. No fingerprints? He must have worn gloves. I've talked with the porter when I first arrived. We'll have him come in presently and tell you what he told me. Meanwhile, as the position of the body may be of importance, I will take one or two photographs and make a rough sketch of the area to scale. Nothing has been moved, you say? Who opened the windows? They were open when we came in. It was quite hot last night, you remember. Nothing whatsoever has been moved. I made sure of that. Thank you, Mr. Marchmont. You've taken nearly a dozen photographs, and now you're sketching every object in the room on a quarter-inch to one-foot scale. You certainly don't spare any trouble, Doctor. Nor time. <laughs> no, I, I try to collect all the facts that may bear on a case. They may prove worthless, or they may turn out to be of vital importance. One never knows beforehand. Good. You're here, Dr. Thorndike. Egerton, good to see you again. I presume you've finished your initial observations. Only just. Uh, Jervis has a thermometer waiting to see the temperature of the body. Uh, let's see it, then. Very well. Here you are. Hmm. Dead ten hours. This was a very determined murder. Uh, very. Uh, Jervis, feel that dagger. It's gone through to the rib. I can feel the blade grating against the bone. It must have been used with extraordinary force. Notice, too, that the clothing is bunched up slightly, as if the blade had been rotated when it was driven in. That is quite singular, certainly, though I don't know if it helps us much. Shall we remove the dagger before moving the body? Uh, certainly. We don't want the movement to produce fresh injuries before we examine the wound. Well, gentlemen, you've examined the body and the wound. You have measured the floor and the furniture and taken photographs. But we don't seem to have made any progress in this investigation. What do you mean, Inspector Badger? Here's a man murdered in his rooms. There's only one entrance to the flat, and it was bolted from the inside. The windows are 40 feet from the ground. There is no rain pipe or other means by which to enter. So the question remains, how did the murderer get in and out? He got in somehow, and he's not here, so he must have gotten out. If he got out, there must be something we've overlooked. From all appearances, the deceased seems to have been alone reading a book. He seems to have noticed that the clock stopped. At ten minutes to twelve, I might add. He laid his book face down on the table and rose to wind the clock. And died there. 
by a stab dealt by a left-handed man who crept up behind him on tiptoe. That would seem to be so, but now I'd like to hear what the porter has to say about this. Can you find him, Inspector? That shouldn't be too hard. He's watching us right now through the mail slot in the letterbox. You, porter, come in here! Yes, Constable? Do you know what persons visited these rooms last night? A good many people were in and out of the building, but I can't say if any of them came to this apartment. I did see Miss Curtis pass in about nine. My my daughter? I didn't know that. She left about 9.30. Do you know what she came about, Mr. Curtis? I, I can guess. Then don't say, Curtis. Answer no questions. We're not suspecting the young lady, Mr. Marchmont. Not unless we have proof. About a week ago, a common-looking man stopped me in the lobby and said he had brought a note to give to Mr. Hartridge. Should you recognize the note the first man gave you? I should say so. Is this the note? It was in his breast pocket with two others. Yes, this is the one. Let's see what it says. Oh, dear. What do you make of that, Dr. Thorndyke? A very interesting production. A magnifying glass, Doctor? I should have thought you could see the note with the naked eye. It's a pretty bold design. Yes, and it says, You are given six days to do what is just. By the sign above, know what to expect if you fail. And what is a sign? A skull and crossbones, neatly but unskillfully drawn at the top of the paper. That explains the singular letter that he wrote yesterday. Do you have it with you, Curtis? Yes, yes, yes. Here it is. Come, if you like, though it is an ungodly hour. Your threatening letters have caused me great amusement. Alfred Hartridge. If you have finished, Dr. Thorndyke, I will be off. I have an idea that I need to look into. Uh, Before you go, I would like to look at the dagger. Oh, very well. Here. Oh, very singular weapon this is. Uh, singular in both shape and material. I've never seen an aluminium hilt before, and the bookbinder's leather is a little unusual. The aluminium hilt was for lightness, and it was made narrow to carry up the sleeve, I expect. Uh, perhaps, perhaps. Well, the magnifying glass again. I never saw such a man as you, Dr. Thorndyke. Your motto ought to be, we magnify thee. I suppose you'll measure it next. Uh, Naturally, Inspector. One can't be too careful in gathering clues. Uh, While I jot down the measurements, could you tell me about the houses opposite from here? They're about uh, 30 yards across from here, with gravel paths and shrubs on the ground between. Well, if any of those rooms were occupied last night, we might obtain an actual eyewitness of the crime. The room was brilliantly lighted, and all the blinds were up. An observer from any of those windows could see in here quite clearly. It might be worth inquiring into. Yes, that's true, though I suspect they will come forward quick enough when they read the report in the papers. But I must be off now, and I shall have to lock you out of the rooms. Dr. Thorndyke and Jervis, I shall be leaving now as well. I plan to stop by your house, Dr. Thorndyke, this evening, unless you need any information from me now. I do have a question, but let's sit in the lounge downstairs to discuss it. Now, I want to know who is interested in Alfred Hartridge's death. Simply, the only person immediately interested in his death is his executor and sole legatee, a man named Leonard Wolfe. He is of no relation, merely a friend, but he inherits the entire estate, about 20,000 pounds. Alfred was the older of two brothers, of whom the younger died before his father, leaving a widow and three children. 
Now, the father died 15 years ago, leaving the whole property to Alfred with the understanding that he should support his brother's family and make the children his heirs. Was there no will? The old man did create a will under pressure, so Alfred had it contested and set aside on grounds of undue influence. Since then, Alfred Hartridge has not paid a penny towards the support of his younger brother's family. If it had not been for my client, Mr. Curtis, they might have starved. The whole burden of the support of the widow and the education of the children has fallen upon him. There is more? Just lately, the matter has escalated for two reasons. The eldest son of the widow, Edmund, has come of age, and a most advantageous proposal for a partnership has been made. We have been putting pressure on Alfred to supply the necessary capital. He refused, and it was in regard to that that we were to meet this morning. The second obstacle is a Leonard Wolfe, an intimate friend of Alfred's. He is a man of bad character. A woman, Hester Green, has claims upon the deceased which we need not go into. Wolfe and Hartridge entered into an agreement. Wolfe would marry Hester Green, and in consideration of that, Alfred would sign his entire estate over to Wolfe, effective immediately upon his death. I, I see. And has this transaction been completed? Unfortunately, it has. But we wish to see if anything could be done for the widow and children during Hartridge's lifetime. No doubt my daughter called last night on a similar mission. She is engaged to Edmund Hartridge, son of the widow, and I expect the interview with Alfred was a pretty stormy one. What sort of man is this Leonard Wolfe? Obviously, he's a scoundrel, but uh, what of his occupation? He was formerly an engineer and a very capable mechanic. More recently, he is living on inherited property and has spent both his time and money on gambling. He's quite likely short on funds at this moment. And what of his appearance? I only saw him once, but I do remember that he is short, fair, thin and clean-shaven. He's lost the middle finger of his left hand as well. If you have all the information that you require, I must really be off. And so must Mr. Curtis. Good morning. Mr. Curtis is a very excitable man, isn't he, Thorndyke? Back inside the lounge, he was nearly... Why are you looking at those bushes like they're holding a clue? They just might. <clears throat> Pardon me, a, a strange and interesting case, isn't it, Jervis? The inspector is out on a hot scent, though it's obviously a red herring. Why do you mean the bushes might... Oh, no. Here comes a porter. No doubt to pump us for more information. <laughs> Hello again, sir. Uh, what are those rooms in the building across the courtyard from here? They're nearly all offices. And the numbers? That open second-floor window, for instance? That one is number six. But the one opposite Mr. Hartridge's room is number eight. Mm, thank you. Uh, oh, I dropped something out of the window just a few minutes ago. A small flat piece of metal. A circular disc with a hexagonal hole in the center. Do you know which window of the apartment it dropped from so I know where to look? Well, it's hard to say where it could land. Somewhere over there, I think. If, if you could ask the gardener to look for it, I'll give him a sovereign for his troubles if he can drop it off at my house this afternoon. It's of no value to anyone else, but considerable much to me. I'll let him know. Didn't see you drop anything, Thorndyke. Uh, come along. There's a few stops I want to make on our way back to the house. What are we doing up here, Thorndyke? Uh, paying a visit to Mr. Thomas Barlow on the third floor. Who is he? Uh, we're about to find out. 
Oh, you startled me. Now my toy's in the trash can. <laughs> Here, let me get it out for you. Apparently, Mr. Barlow is not in and is not planning to return shortly. I was only playing with the dear Barlow for a little while. Mr. Barlow won't be back today. He left a note. Here it is. Uh, take a look at this inkpot, Jervis. Yes, red ink. Uh, did you break the ink stand yesterday? Yes, I did. How'd you know? <laughs> I didn't, or I wouldn't have asked. But I do see that he has used his stylographic pen to write this note. What? How? I really called to see if your Mr. Barlow was a gentleman whom I used to know. Tall and thin, dark, clean-shaven? <laughs> that ain't him. He's thin, but ain't tall or dark. Uh, he's got a sandy beard and wears spectacles and a wig. I, I know a wig when I see one, because my father wears one. He put it on a peg to comb it, and he swears at me when I laugh at him. Well, my, my friend also had injured his left hand. I, I don't know about that. Mr. Barlow nearly always wears gloves. He always wears one on his left hand, anyhow. Ah, well, I'll just write him a note on the chance if you will give me a piece of notepaper. Have you any ink? Uh, there's some in the bottle. I'll dip the pen for you. Uh, thank you very much. Anything more you can tell us about Mr. Barlow? No, I don't think so. Uh, on second thought, I don't think I will leave this note after all. Uh, no, uh, tell him I called, uh, Mr. Horace Budge, and say I will look in again in a day or two. Mr. Horace Budge? What are you about this time, Thorndyke? And why did you keep that note instead of leaving it for Mr. Barlow? I wanted to examine the note. Uh, we're lucky, Jervis. Very lucky. We are doing uncommonly well in our investigation. What investigation? We've talked with a boy and the caretaker of the building Barlow's office is in. Who said that this Mr. Barlow left around half past eight this morning with two cases of luggage. One was square and the other long and narrow, about five feet long. I don't see how that matters. Well, I do. The caretaker also mentioned that Mr. Barlow had only been staying for about six weeks. Yes, that is useful, but you just purchased an obsolete French sword bayonet and a chasse-pole rifle. What is that for? <laughs> House protection, Jervis. You will agree that a discharge of musketry followed by a bayonet charge would disconcern even the boldest of burglars? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it would. <laughs> but what of that block of metal and a strip of tool steel? Uh, those are for Poulton. What for, Thorndike? I'm going to give him my notes on the crime scene, and we'll see if my theory is right. What theory is that? Uh, please, you're chasing the thoughts right out of my mind. I'll send for you when I've got it all figured out. Thorndike, Mr. Marchmont is here to see you. Oh, thank you, Jervis. I've got you the specimen of handwriting you asked for. Ah, excellent. I didn't think I would be able to, but by luck, Curtis kept the only letter he ever received from the party in question. Yes, well, let me see it. There you are. By the way, I thought the inspector took away the dagger with him this morning. How did you get it? The dagger? Yes, right here on the table. Ah, uh, the inspector took the original. This is a duplicate that Poulton made, for experimental purposes, from my drawings. Really? It is a perfect replica. And you have made it so quickly, too. It was quite easy to make, to a man accustomed to work with metal. Which is a fact of some evidential value. Marchmont, he took her. Inspector Badger came to our house and arrested her for murder. My daughter, Edith, my God, I shall go mad. Oh, now, don't distress yourself, Mr. Curtis. There's no reason to, I assure you. I suppose your daughter is left-handed? Yes, by a most disastrous coincidence. But what are we to do? They have taken her to prison. To prison? Think of it. Oh, my poor Edith. Uh, we'll soon have her out. Uh, Jervis, please, see who's at the door. 
Oh, Inspector Badger. I can come back later. Uh, don't go, Inspector. I want to have a word with you. Perhaps Mr. Curtis would look in again, say, in an hour, will you? We shall have some news for you by then. Y- yes, I-, I can do that. One hour, yes. You seem to have been busy, Inspector. I've got a pretty strong case against Miss Curtis already. You see, she was the last person seen in the company of the deceased. She had a grievance against him. She is left-handed. Do you remember the murder was committed by a left-handed person? Well, yes, it was. Explain to me then, Inspector. How did she get out of the chambers with the door bolted on the inside? Ah, there you are. That's the mystery at present. Unless you can give us an explanation. There was no one in the place when we broke in. The murderer must have gotten out somehow. You can't deny that. I do deny it, nevertheless. What? You look surprised, Inspector, but the whole thing is exceedingly obvious. The explanation struck me directly after I looked at the body. There was evidently no practicable exit from the flat, and there was certainly no one in it when you entered. Clearly, then, the murderer had never been in the place at all. I don't follow you in the least. Well, I finished with my investigation, Inspector, so I'll give you the evidence in sequence. I think we are agreed that at the moment when the blow was struck, the deceased was standing before the fireplace, winding the clock. The dagger entered from the left, and you'll remember that its hilt pointed directly towards an open window. Which was 40 feet from the ground. Yes, that's correct. And now we will consider the very peculiar character of the weapon with which the crime was committed. Uh, Let me show you. Come in. The porter from the apartments. I found the article you were looking for, sir, and a rare hunt I had for it. It was stuck in the leaves of one of them shrubs. (laughs) Thank you very much. Here's the sovereign, I promise. Uh, The inspector has your name, I think? He has, sir. Thank you, sir. Now, to return to the dagger. It was a very peculiar one, as I have said, and you can see from this model I had Poulton make. This is remarkable, Poulton. It looks identical. All the measurements are from Thorndyke's notes. The blade is extraordinarily slender and free from projections and made of unusual materials. It was obviously not made by any ordinary dagger maker. In spite of the Italian word scrawled on it, there is plainly written all over it, British mechanic. The blade is made from a strip of common three-quarter-inch tool steel. The hilt is turned from an aluminium rod. There is not a line of engraving on it that could not be produced in a lathe by any engineer's apprentice. Even the boss at the top is mechanical, for it is just like an ordinary hexagon nut. Notice the dimension shown in my drawing. The angles of the hexagon are each parts of a circle with a diameter of 10.9 millimeters, the exact caliber of the old Chaspobe rifle. That's the rifle you purchased this morning. Several shops around town had them. That's correct, Jervis. Now observe. My replica of the dagger fits perfectly into the barrel. You don't suggest that the dagger was shot from a gun. I do indeed. And now you see the reason for the aluminium hilt? To diminish the weight of the already heavy projectile. That's correct, Jervis. I don't understand, but I think you are suggesting an impossible feat. Allow me to demonstrate. The dagger spun point first. We know that from the wound itself. Now, to make it spin, it had to be fired from a rifled barrel. The dagger hilt was not engaged in the rifling, so it had to be fitted with something that would spin. This was a soft metal washer that was fitted onto the hexagon. It would then be pressed into the grooves of the rifling and cause the dagger to spin, but it would drop off as soon as the weapon left the barrel. Dr. Thorndyke had me make a washer capable of doing that very thing. Here it is. I still say it's impossible, though quite ingenious. It certainly does sound impossible. Please, allow me. 
What are you doing? You're not going to shoot that rifle with a dagger in it, are you? Of course I am. I've placed a target in the hall across the office door, which gives us a total length of 32 feet. Why, is that... Please stand back, please. <laughs> Dr. Thorndike! Let it alone, Marchmont. He's quite excited about his discovery. And there you have it. The dagger is buried to the hilt in the straw target. It certainly is possible, Thorndike. I'll say that. On the original dagger, there are linear scratches which exactly correspond with the grooves of the rifling. It was spinning from left to right, I think you said earlier. I yes, then there is this that the porter has just brought. Good heavens, Thorndike! I give in, Doctor. You're right, beyond all doubt. Those two washers are identical in all means. But how you came to think of it beats me. The only question that remains is, who fired the gun and why wasn't the report heard? He probably used a compressed air attachment, not only to diminish the noise, but also to prevent any traces of the explosive from being left on the dagger. What about the murderer? I think I can give you the name, but we'd better not jump to conclusions. You may remember that when Dr. Jervis stood as if winding the clock, I chalked a marked spot on the floor where he stood. Now, standing on the marked spot, I looked out of the open window, and I could see two windows of the building nearly opposite. Yes, we uh, looked at those two offices. One was a firm of architects... But we went up to the third floor to speak with a commission agent, uh, Mr. Thomas Barlow. Uh, that's correct. Inspector, you haven't those threatening letters about you, I suppose? Um, well, yes, I, I do, as a matter of fact. Here you are, Doctor. Uh, thank you. Uh, examine the first one closely. The paper and envelope are of the most common manufacture, and the handwriting is illiterate. But the ink, on the other hand, is Draper's Dichroic Ink, not the penny bottle ink you would expect an illiterate person to use. What? That's a top-quality ink. We use that at my law office. Uh, note also that the red ink is an unfixed scarlet ink, such as used by draftsmen, and was used in a stylographic pen, not a fountain pen. How can you tell that? Careful examination and the eye for detail. Continue, please, Thorndike. Yes, well, notice also the sketch at the top. It is by far the most interesting thing about this letter. The man can't draw, and the proportions are ridiculous. Ah, perhaps so, Inspector, but they are quite symmetrical. Are they? The drawing is very neat and is done with a steady, practiced hand. If you look through my magnifying lens, you can see that the skull is placed exactly in the center of the crossbones. By Jove, it is! How did that happen? Ah, there are traces of penciled lines, and I discovered tiny particles of soft red rubber where the lines were erased. All of that combined sounds like whomever drew that sketch is familiar with making accurate mechanical drawings. But what does this have to do with Mr. Barlow? We stopped by this morning, and he was out. Ah, I took the liberty of glancing around the office while speaking with the office boy. On the mantel shelf was a 12-inch ruler, such as engineers use, a piece of soft red rubber, and a stone bottle of Draper's Dichroic ink. I obtained, by a simple ruse, a specimen of the office notepaper and the ink. We will examine that presently. What else did you find out? Mr. Barlow is a new tenant. He's rather short wears a wig and spectacles, and always wears a glove on his left hand. He left the office at 8.30 this morning and had with him a square case and a narrow oblong one, about five feet in length. He took a cab to Victoria and apparently caught the 8.51 train to Chatham. Ah! Now, when you compare the threatening letter to Mr. Hartridge with the sample of paper I obtained from Mr. Barlow's office, you will see that they are identical. Yes, they are. What is of crucial importance is this. In each of these letters, you can see two tiny indentations uh, near the bottom corner. Oh, 
Someone used a compass or drawing pins over the entire packet of notepaper. You'll find those indentations on all the papers from the same stack. Yes, I see them. They're on all the papers. It would appear, then, that Mr. Barlow wrote all the letters. Who is this Mr. Barlow? That is for you to determine. But I can give you a useful hint. There is only one person who benefits by the death of Alfred Hartridge, but he benefits to the extent of 20,000 pounds. It's Leonard Wolfe. Your description of Mr. Barlow can easily be changed. The wig, the beard, and spectacles, and the glove on his left hand. That's good enough for me. Give me his address and I'll have Miss Curtis released at once. You there, Leonard Wolfe. You are under arrest for the murder of Alfred Hartridge. Don't move, sir. I can see you're trying to bury that. Lower the Derringer, Mr. Wolfe. Well, that's that, I guess. Dr. Thorndyke was exactly right. Barlow and Wolf were one and the same, and here is the murder weapon he tried to bury, the compressed air rifle he used to fire the aluminium dagger. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndyke, written by R. Austin Freeman, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. In the cast were Dave Johnson as Dr. John Thorndyke, Roy Nessel as Jervis, Brad Hendricks as Nathaniel Poulton, Dave Van Meer as Henry Curtis. Edward Romero as Inspector Badger. Reed Thompson as Marchmont. Other parts played by members of the cast. I'm your announcer, Jason Lind. Edited by Jay Charles. Produced by Joseph C. McGuire. Directed by Susan Herrick. Recorded at KSVR Studios. This was a Radio Theater Project presentation. Mm-hmm.